hello and welcome to a very special end of the year edition of did you do our words are hard sometimes <laughs> did we do your homework did we do your homework are we cheating <laughs> do we Hello and welcome to a very special end of the year edition of Did You Do Your Homework? I am your co-host and soon to be party host, uh, Martha Sullivan, and I am here today as usual with my other co-host. Ooh, I am uh, your other co-host and soon to be party goer, uh, Pete Romberg. Yay! Um, we are dispensing with our normal format this week and flying guestless guestless uh to bring you some of our favorite things that we um consumed and experienced this year uh 2018 has been a year uh it has taken approximately 46 years off my life mm-hmm. um and sometimes i think about the things that came out at the beginning of the year and it's like okay i will take your word for it um but we also had some pretty good stuff this year, uh, which I think we're going to get into. Uh, we will cap the episode off by telling, giving you guys a little peek behind the curtain uh, to tell you what were our favorite and least favorite homework assignments. Um, I know we're not really shy about sharing our opinions on this show, but you know sometimes it's kind of fun to to really get into the stuff we liked and didn't like, um, particularly when. I don't know about you, Pete, but I sometimes try to qualify how much I disliked something uh, because that tends to be a real good discussion killer to just say, this sucked and I hated it. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, it was fun looking back at all that we had consumed over the past year. Um, there was a lot of things that really stuck in my mind, either for good or bad reasons. But then there was a lot that kind of didn't. So looking back and just seeing what we covered was like really delightful to be like, oh, right. Like I did watch or read or listen to this, uh, you know, this year. That was another thing when I, I made a list of all the homework that we had uh, assigned and been assigned this year. And it was like, oh, we've done a lot of stuff. You should uh, publish that list maybe on like, say, a sure. blog or something. Uh, you know, maybe a I newsletter. I... Or both. Or both. Both sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Pete, why don't you kick us off with the first thing on your top 10 of 2018 list? All right. Uh to begin with, my top 10 list is in no particular order. Um, honestly, it's the order that these things came to me, but I also tried to spread it out um, so that I wouldn't have clusters of, like, here are four albums in a row or here are four movies in a row. So it's spread out a little bit. Um, I feel like the things that came to me first are the ones that impacted me the most, so I'm going to save those for the end. Um, so the thing that I thought about... I guess most recently that I liked a lot this year was the Netflix series Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Uh, this is a cooking show based on a cookbook of the same name by... I'm uh, going to cut this part out because I was supposed to have brought this up to find her name and then didn't. Um, so it's based on a cookbook uh, of the same name uh, by Samin uh, Nosrat, and I think that's how you say her last name. Um, and it's just frankly delightful um four episodes each episode focusing on one of those four elements of cooking salt fat acid or heat uh each one focuses on a particular culture so fat we're looking at italy salt we're looking at japan and and acid we're looking at mexico um 
she is absolutely fantastic at talking about food, absolutely loving food. Um, watching her eat food is delightful because she takes so much enjoyment out of it. Um, and it's the kind of thing where I'm like, well, I guess I need to go to Italy, Japan, Mexico, uh, to, like, consume this outrageously good, like, miso soup or this, like, you know, 10-year-aged Parmesan cheese or whatever. Um, the most important thing for me, uh, was learning that olive oil apparently has, like, an expiration date. So if you got those fancy olive oils, I always give nice flavored olive oils, um, as a gift this time of year. And I like buying them myself, and then I usually just put them in a cabinet and forget about them, or I don't want to use them because I think that they're special. Um, apparently not the best idea. I should be using them. Well, that's always true. I have that particular, like, saving this for a special occasion. Um, when is your special occasion going to be? Right. I, yeah. I mean, I suffer that too, but I'm definitely, I'm, tr I'm definitely getting more into the idea of I bought this because I wanted to eat it. So I'm gonna eat it. Yeah, I, like oils, I, I usually are like, I'll use a little bit right off the bat and then I'll like save it for a while. But after watching the episode on fat where she talks about olive oil and Italian cooking, I was like, nope, gonna use up all those fancy olive oils because A, they taste great and B, I can buy more. Heck yeah. All right. um, uh, well, Martha, what is your number 10? Sure. Um, I am going to preface this really quick by saying, because I don't think we addressed, maybe this was implicit at the top of the episode, um, but I think we both kept our list to things that actually were released in 2018, not just things that we consumed in 2018. Yeah, that's a good point. I also kept my list to things mostly released in 2018. I had a couple where it was like part of a series that spanned previous years, but had sure. the most recent thing come out this year. Yeah, um, my first thing that I want to talk about, and I'm going to talk about it first because it's the one that I'm sort of least confident in its place on this list of mine. Um, and I think I put it on here because it's more representative of several things. Um, and that's the book Puddin' by Julie Murphy. Uh, this was a companion YA novel to Dumplin', which was released a couple of years ago and was just made into a truly delightful Netflix movie. Um, and... Puddin' is a solid sequel. Um, it focuses on one of the secondary characters from Dumplin' and is just completely charming. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about the whole Dumplin' slash Puddin' resurgence uh, this year is that it is uh, kind of indicative of just this rise of the sincere teen rom-com mm. in our pop cultural landscape. Like, a lot of really good, just totally played straight, uh, teen rom-coms came out this year like Love, Simon and To All the Boys I've Loved Before and Dumplin' and I just I'm, I'm totally into sincere romantic comedies you'll see that come up again on this list um, and Puddin' is sort of representative of that for me so so this one is, is kind of less the thing itself and more what it represents for me uh this year in that kind of arena of pop culture. Nice. And and you went with this over to all the boys I've loved before. Um so I mean honestly I've consumed none of these so I'm I'm asking because to all the boys is the one that is like the one that I've heard about the most so to me it's the like it's the exemplar one. For me it was a matter of format. Puddin is a book. Um 
and to all the boys I've loved before, the film came out on Netflix. The book has been out for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't read the book yet because mm-hmm. I'm a bad librarian. <laughs> um, but like I said, this one was I, I went back and forth a lot. This this slot could have been taken up by to all the boys I've loved before or Love, Simon or um, the Dumplin' adaptation. Um, so you know what? I'm just going to call this first slot. I'm going to cheat a little bit and just call it teen <laughs> romantic comedy. <laughs> nice. Because depending on how I'm feeling on any given day, like I said, any one of those things could have taken this spot on sure, my list. Sure, sure. Um, well, the number nine on my list is a album. Uh, you'll, I, I hope you all are sitting down. I've got a couple albums on my list, because uh, I like music. Um, this is Beach House's seventh studio album, cleverly titled Seven. Um, I've enjoyed Beach House since about 2009 or 2010. Um, I don't want to say it was before they were cool, but it was basically before they were cool. Um, and they just make phenomenal music. This is them edging into a little bit of a, a darker territory for them. It's a little bit more, um, edgy sounds stupid and like gothy sounds stupid as adjectives to describe it, but it's a little bit of a harder music than what they normally make. Um, the videos, uh, for this album have been fantastic. The sound has been fantastic. Uh, I don't think Beach House has a bad album and it's really exciting to see that they've made seven uh, absolutely knock them out of the park albums with a consistent sound that has been able to evolve and change over time. Um, you're probably going to ask me, what do they sound like? And I'm going to say gauzy dream pop uh, with a bit of a harder edge on this album. I actually think that they've, I think that when this album came up, bleh, I think that when this album came out, it was your uh, stuck in your head for the week. I fully believe that because I like this is an album that I return to time and time again. Um, like I said, I like uh, partly because I have it on vinyl and it's one of two Beach House albums I do, so I listen to it a lot that way. Um, Nerd. Yeah, but even beyond that, um, like I I like all of Beach House's albums, but I don't go to their earlier stuff quite as often. Um, a couple years ago, they released two albums in a single year. Both were great, but I gravitate towards one a little more than the other. This one, like, I find myself returning to time and time again. Maybe because it's the most recent one, um, but, like, regardless, I've, I've listened to it a lot, and it's still stuck in my head however many months later. So, in your honest opinion, based on what you know about my trash taste in music, would I enjoy this album? You should listen to to Beach House. Um, they're the kind of band where if you're like, what's your favorite song? I'd be like, I don't know the names of any of their songs. Um, <laughs> because like the album kind of washes over you and then 40 minutes later you're like, oh great, that was a fantastic experience and I don't know the names of any of the songs. It's um, it's it's a gauzy dream pop shoegazy sound, which means that the lyrics are much more like impressionistic floaty vocal noises than like proper lyrics. Um, that's kind that's kind of a problem for me because I have trouble connecting to music when I can't distinguish or there are no lyrics I'll throw you a YouTube link uh after the show for one or two songs that you might be into and honestly it's the sort of thing where like if you like these one or two songs you'll like all of their stuff and if you don't like them you won't like any of their stuff because while they their song, like their sounds, have evolved and everything. Um, it's very much of a certain genre um, that they just do masterfully. So, 
Uh, the next thing on my list is an episode of television, which was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that came out this year. And actually, <laughs> let me... I... I have to pause for a moment just to verify yeah. that this did come out this year. Was this the episode where they got married? Yes. Ah, fun. Uh, Marin was literally just watching that earlier okay. today. As yes. she was making less stuff. <laughs> All right. So my next thing is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Season 5, Episode 22, Jake and Amy. Nine-Nine. Uh, the episode where Jake and Amy get married. Um, I just recently rewatched it, and I cried just as hard as I did the first time I watched it. There is something in particular about a really good TV wedding between fictional characters that I feel deep affection for. And one of the things that I think that Brooklyn Nine-Nine is so good at is character growth mm -hmm. and keeping like character growth while also keeping the characters identifiably themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that Jake has undergone undergone incredible character development um but is still recognizably himself and i love him who he and amy are together and how they have grown um and i think that the wedding episode particularly their vows really really encapsulates that um incredibly well it's a very very sharp piece of writing that I would not have expected from this show uh, when I first started watching it, which I don't mean to, which I don't mean to be like a bad thing. I mean, the show has always been great, um, but this was a kind of episode that I would not have predicted we would get, and I just thought it was perfect. Nine Nine is a Michael Schur, right? Yes. It okay, good, because it feels like a thousand percent like a Michael Schur show in the sense that it's people whom you like spending time with getting into antics um, and also slowly growing and changing as people. And I ag agree with you 100% that um, it's it's a great, sh like, it. I, I honestly have not sat down and watched every episode, like, in um, chronological order. I just end up, like, watching whatever episodes happen to be on as I walk through the room, which means I've watched every episode just, like, out of order. But you can tell that that growth is happening when it's like, oh, this is like a, a, a season 102 or like this is a season uh, four or five just based on like how they're all interacting with each other. Um, yeah, Jake and Captain Holt, I think, are two of the most obvious examples of characters that undergo a distinct, like trackable character growth while mm -hmm. never, while still feeling very much like who they are. Yes. Yeah, th there's never like a... a character jumping the shark moment right also rosa also everyone on that show i love this show so much yes. anyway jake and amy yep cool uh my number eight then is um a graphic novel volume that you have heard both martha and i talk a lot about on this show that's right it's the wicked and the divine a graphic novel series that we both love um volume seven mothering invention came out i think two months ago um, volume six also came out this year. That one sort of washed over me. It was fine. It advanced the plot, whatever. Volume seven had multiple sequences that I'm still thinking about. Um, I, I agree completely. Yeah. So like not to spoil anything too much, but it, it said, I think episode or volume eight is going to be the last volume. Yes. Great. This feels like a great penultimate volume where there is a lot of information, a lot of new information, a lot of 
threads are being, if not tied up, then at least brought together to get tied up in the next volume. Um, but there are sequences, multi-page spreads of just black panels, or multi-page spreads of like time incrementing from the dawn of time to, to now. Um, it is, I was talking the other day about how Wicked Divine is a great example of using graphic novels like it, it's the kind of thing that works because it uses the medium so innovatively and so well it would make an interesting tv show but probably not a good one because you lose so much of the formal innovation from just the the visual drawn medium um i i disagree with that and i will tell you why later in this list cool uh well and i was going to bring it up and compare it to Asterios pollock my homework from i think last episode was that just last, last episode? episode jesus christ yes. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of 2018 lasting for 40 years um but so so i was talking about that and and realizing just how many outrageous formal innovations wicked divine has that many of which are in this volume seven mothering invention um obviously it's the kind of comic that you have to read from the beginning so if you haven't done so yet grab volume one from your local library or uh, independent bookstore and plow through it yeah, Wicked and Divine is a comic that I have always loved, but I do think that some of the volumes suffer a little bit from bloat. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I agree. I think this one did a really good job of positioning the story for uh, the final volume um, while being coherent in a way that I think the comic occasionally has trouble with. Yeah. It, this, it was also great because it, it felt like we had a lot of like, a lot of character growth happened, and it felt earned. Yes. Um, which is nice, because sometimes I feel like things happen because they have to happen in this series. Uh, whereas almost everything in Volume 7 felt like it should happen. Uh, okay, so uh, number eight on my list is Crazy Rich Asians, um, the movie. I just finished the book, uh, which I didn't, which I actually did not like as well as mm. I liked this film. Uh, the movie is beautiful and frothy and over the top and incredibly charming. Um, and the book, well, I'm, okay, I'm not going to talk about the book. I'm just going to talk about the movie. Uh, but this is part of what I talked about um, a little earlier ago in that I'm just really excited that we are in an age where we're making sincere romantic comedies again. I think for a long time, uh, we were very absorbed in like deconstructing the romantic comedy tropes and in doing stuff that was unexpected and kind of cynical. And while that kind of thing can be very enjoyable, sometimes I just want to watch two people fall in love and overcome an obstacle. Well, and honestly, <laughs> we've also been in a time where there's just been zero romantic comedies of any sort. True. So yeah, I, I just thought Crazy Rich Asians was a beautiful spectacle. Um, I thought it was phenomenal that it is a movie made entirely with Asian people that made a ton of money so at the box money. office. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing is I really hope we are getting out of this weird fabrication that Asian men can't be sexy, um, which has never been true. <laughs> because Jet Li exists. <laughs> um, and that people of color can drive a box office. Uh, I, I really enjoyed watching this movie, and I have really enjoyed watching it be successful. This has been the year, and, and we both will talk about this later, of like people of color and women showing that like the, it, 
the tired and untrue argument that only white dudes can star in movies is not only wrong for storytelling reasons, but also for box office reasons. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, speaking of, that was a perfect segue. Uh, my number seven. You're welcome. Yeah, my number seven is Roma, uh, Alfonso Curion's new movie about... Um, it's available on Netflix, but I would highly, highly, highly recommend you see it in a theater if possible. Um, it is a basically autobiographical with the names changed kind of situation um, of a housekeeper in a, basically a, a live-in housekeeper in a middle-class family in Mexico in 1971. Um, it is modeled in like entirely off of uh, Corion's own personal life to the point where he had very long interviews with his own um, housekeeper when he was a child um, to sort of learn her story and, and use that as the basis for this. Um, it's in Spanish and also, oh, I hope I get this right, Mixteca, um, which is a, a uh, indigenous language in Mexico. And the way they do that with subtitles is they put brackets around uh, one language so that you can tell, um, you know, who is speaking what when. Um, it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Corio not only directed it, uh, wrote the screenplay, he also was the cinematographer, and he might have edited it. Um, but it was also about a thousand times more intense than I thought it would be, because it's a Corio movie, so that's just what we're doing. Um, let's just say that in 1971, there are some student protests and some government-organized death squads running around, and that uh, has a role to play in the movie. Um, also, he uses his patented very long takes in ways that I did not even realize was happening at the moment. Um, some of which, like uh, the Children of Men, incredibly long single take inside a car where you're moving inside and outside a car during a climactic fight sequence, he uses that in a totally banal we're driving to the coast as a family arguing over the radio sequence. But as you're watching, you're just like, Wait, the way that camera's moving is literally impossible, right? How did he do that? Um, but then there are also takes where I did not realize it was a single take until I reflected on it afterwards because I was on the edge of my seat about what was happening in the scene, um, which is pretty high praise for me because I, uh, clearly I'm talking about it a lot, I obsess over the idea of like the single take and the formal structure of the movie. Um, so I have a question. Yeah. Is this... If this is streaming on Netflix, did it get a theatrical release? Yeah, it's currently available in both. Um, oh. It was a Netflix is the distributor of the movie. They are releasing it in theaters so that it can be eligible for like Oscars and stuff. Um, but you yes. can like, it's definitely available. I'm sure in the Chicagoland area. I saw it at an arts theater up here in Milwaukee. Um, you could watch it on Netflix right now, but definitely go see it in the theater if possible, if only for the immersiveness of it. Um, like, when I watch a movie on Netflix, I am definitely bad at, like, also having my phone out and, like, dithering about on Twitter. And I'm very glad I wasn't doing that here. Um, subtitles obviously draw you in a little bit more. You have to pay a little more attention. But even though for, like, for long, um, non-talky takes, uh, it's nice to have the, um, even the possibility of the distraction not available to you. My next movie is, or my next thing on this list is another movie that I had to double check the release date because I could not believe it has been this long. Um, but that is This Spring's Annihilation with Natalie Portman. Came out around the same time as Black Panther, another movie that came out 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think it came out in March. Mm -hmm. um, Annihilation is 
not and it is not a movie without flaws um but it is one of the most beautiful and interesting depictions of grief Mm. that i have ever seen um and it is doing that while also being an incredibly trippy weird sci-fi horror movie yeah um but it, it deals really beautifully and really sensitively with grief, like recovering from grief and trauma and dealing with really traumatic life events. Um, all of the main characters are women, which is awesome. Um, and they're all dealing with, they're all suffering from something. Um, I'm also not going to get spoilery because I, th- I think this is a movie where the kind of less that you know, the better. Um, but each of the women that's on this exploratory team that goes into this, uh, like anomaly event. Yeah. Um, each one has something like something traumatic that they are dealing with. And I appreciate that the movie shows that they each are dealing with it differently. Like trauma is not one size fits all. Um, and also not all of the ways that they're dealing with them are healthy. So like it, it's not casting judgment on how people deal with trauma, but it is showing that it manifests uh, very differently um, amongst different people. Um, and there, there's one, one moment in particular that I'm thinking of, which again, not going to describe it because I want everyone to see this movie, um, but it could have been a really kind of, tacky and icky scene and ends up being really sensitive and beautiful Mm. uh and i again the fact that this is packaged up in one of the most bizarre sci-fi movies i've ever seen um i think was a really deft trick of filmmaking have you read the book i tried (laughs) oh no no i'm going to i think it's a book that i just have to sit down and read in an afternoon Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know that it lends itself to like reading a couple pages here and there. And it's not very long. I Um, agree with you 100% there. Um, It is also, it is also not the same thing as the movie. Oh yeah. So so, like I, I saw a lot of people on the internet were mad that the movie was as they saw it, a bad adaptation. And I, I would consider it to be, I, I think that you have to think of it as its own entity. I I brought up if you'd read the book. Um, first I, when I read it, I did read it in an afternoon because I literally couldn't stop reading it. Um, it just like it grabbed me very quickly, and then the day was over, and then I was done with the book, and uh, all the things I'd wanted to do were not done. Um, but I, I think it's a great. There's two kinds of adaptations, right? Like, there's, like, there's the Lord of the Rings adaptation, which is, like, a great scene-for-scene sort of, like, you're perfectly visualizing what's on the page. This was a, I feel like, a tone or spiritual adaptation where he took the, the feeling that you get when you read the book and he translated that on the screen rather than the actual events happening in the book. Um, partly because I think some of the things happening in the book would be impossible to translate properly on the screen, it's first person, and a lot of it has to do with, like, how people are perceiving things, which you just can't do in a third-person, like, omniscient um, perspective of a movie camera. Um, so I, I thought it, it perfectly captured the experience of reading the book while also using, like, telling its own story and using the methods of movies rather than the methods of 
first person uh, written narrative. So as somebody who has both seen the movie and wa- seen the movie and read the book, would you call it a success? Like, would you call the movie successful in what it's trying to do? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed both of them. They were doing very different things. Um, I saw the movie after it had been out for a little bit. So I sort of knew I'd read enough reviews saying it's like it's not going to be a shot for shot, you know, adaptation. It's more like a tone adaptation. Um, and I thought that was right on the money. Cool. Good deal. I loved it. Yeah. Put Natalie Portman in more stuff. I, I was excited to see you had it on the uh, on your list for top 10. I honestly, I haven't. I have been thinking about it pretty. I think about it a lot. <laughs> that's that's cool. I love when like whatever media does that. Like it it warps your brain. Idea virus or idea parasite. I don't know. I was gonna say which for this movie is pretty apt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, cool. Well, my number six uh, is one of the examples on my list of things that have been out for a couple years, but has a new new stuff out now, so I'm counting it as 2018, and that's the show The Good Place. Um, I don't think I started watching The Good Place until 2018. Uh, I definitely... I started watching during season two, which might have been earlier this year, because this year has been ten years long. Um, But regardless, The Good Place is amazing. It's the second Michael Schur show we have on our combined lists, um, because he's real good at doing TV. Um, I love this show so much. <laughs> yeah, I. If if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have seen it, there's nothing I can say that will change your opinion about it, other than that. Um, uh, Jeremy Baramy might be one of the greatest jokes ever conceived. Can I tell you my? I think one of my favorite things about that show. Okay. It treats its audience like we are intelligent viewers. Yes. Which I wish wasn't such a notable phenomenon yeah but it really trusts its viewers to to be along with it for it's like weird philosophical ride i mean it's it's a primetime television comedy that explores philosophical ideas in astonishing depth considering it's a 22 minute show that airs once a week i was gonna say it doesn't dumb down the concepts that it is discussing it all. Like it, it explains them. It explains them for lay people by necessity, but yeah. that's because like the care, it assumes that we are at least on the same level as the characters. This is so like show... we need, we need as much explanation at any given point as Eleanor does. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I appreciate not being talked down to while I'm watching a sitcom. This is a show that will simultaneously literally create the trolley problem to, like, and, and like, murder people on a trolley. Um, and at the same time have one of their characters be killed because he got stuck in a uh, safe? Cause, and he brought a snorkel? Because he thought that would get him air. <laughs> <laughs> so it is the... It, it covers all the bases so well. Um, that being said, the other thing I love about it is... It feels like almost every episode, it's throwing out, it, it, it because it's Michael Schur, it's all character driven. We love spending time with these characters and they are our, our, um, our North Star for the entire show. That being said, um, it throws out the premise every single episode. Every single episode is like, oh, 
season spoilers for the good place season one and two if you haven't gotten this far i don't know Um, can you say can you say what you're about to say without spoiling it because that one's such a good one that i yeah okay fine (laughs) Uh, long story short it, it, it in an increasingly rapid pace it is setting up a premise and then and, and, you think, and, and, yeah, and, and you think you know what the show is going to be and then it's destroying the premise setting up a new premise you think you know what the show is going to be now destroying that and it's it's getting faster but it's still fantastic i don't know how they're doing it i mean i, well, I know how they're doing it they have a good writer's room but uh yeah. i i think because the way that they're doing it it still is um contextually sound like they're they're destroying the premise of the show but they're not they're doing it within the logic of the show. Yes. So it still stays reasonable. Like it is still a believable thing within the world that they have built because that world is so consistent and well-structured. All right. Um, my number six is an episode is another episode of TV. It is the sixth episode of the haunting of Hill house. Oh, that uh, two so storms. Good. Um, also known as the episode with that 22-minute long tracking shot mm-hmm. that was a continuous piece of filming that also moved between two different time periods seamlessly and in a way that just destroyed me. And two different sets seamlessly. They had to build those freaking sets next to each other to make that work. But yes, this for me was when Hill House was at its best. Um, this episode I thought was a great mix of the family and emotional drama. And also it probably had a jump scare. I honestly could not tell you what that jump scare was because I'm still too busy thinking about the moments that were like hair raising on the back of your neck, creepy rather than scary. I don't know if it had a jump scare. It had, it had intensity, but I don't know if it had a violin sting jump scare you know i think it did just with like the physicality of the storm yeah like exploding windows or something yeah um but yeah for me this was this was the peak of the show um i weirdly have found myself in another argument with somebody over whether this show counts as horror (laughs) (laughs) let me put your fears to rest it is. <laughs> it can be an emotional family gothic drama and also still be horror. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I feel very strongly that we as a people need to get used to the fact that horror can be something that we like. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I know who one of these people is already because we had the argument on air. Who are these people who are like, it's not a horror. It's obvious, I'm like... Sure. What? I'm calling. I'm calling you out, Lizzie. All right. Well, this this whole generation show. of of twenty eight year olds needs to figure out what horror is. Right. I was like, it has ghosts. Um, it has ghosts that mean harm. It's literally a haunted. Anyway, this is literally matter. a haunted house. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed Haunting of Hill House. I'm still finding reasons to talk about it. I think this was the best episode of that show. Um, hands down the best episode of this show, immediately following the second, what I would say is the second best episode of the show, which is the Bent Neck Lady. Yes. Um, to the point where that one-two punch 
to me, elevated the show so much that I don't think it actually recovered from it because it was all downhill from there. Was the Bent Neck Lady episode four or five? I think it was five. Because Nell is the fifth sibling? I thought it was episode four. Oh, you might be right, because she... Because I think episode five is um, Luke's episode. Yeah, it it totally is, uh, because they have to have her body in the morgue for a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Um. And Luke's episode, I thought was fine and interesting. So I, I we hit oh, that. No. No, you're right. I'm mixing them up. I'm looking at IMDb right now. Episode four is the twin thing, and episode five is the bent neck lady, and episode six is two storms. And then after that, I was an emotional wreck for the rest of my life. Yeah, but also I think the show like went downhill because it hit that peak in the middle, and it was hard to. Ah, uh, except, I thought the penultimate episode. That was real was... good also very good Mm -hmm. this this show had this show definitely had its peaks and valleys and and i would say the first half of the last episode i enjoyed a lot the idea that like the red room is the stomach of the house not the heart is like that's a a, an idea that is like obviously staying with me um revelation that the red room has been everyone's room of necessity as it were um room of requirement that's what i was going for uh was so creepy and so wasted uh, right yeah because like the last 10 minutes of the show is just like oh huh but anyway yeah. that's not what i'm talking about nope you're talking um, about the good episodes not the bad yes. episodes uh now that we are both halfway through our lists do we want to take a quick break yeah. and then come back and finish up yeah we'll take a recess break jump right in with my number five uh this one i went back and forth on um and ultimately decided that i was going to include it because of what i think it is accomplishing uh this is the adventure zone graphic novel here there be gerblins by the mcelroy family and uh art by carrie peach uh this is a graphic novel adaptation of the first arc of the adventure zone um and i thought that how it turns something that is like a goofy freeform Dungeons and Dragons thing into a cohesive narrative um, was really kind of incredible. Um, it it does a lot like I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how to explain it to somebody that hasn't read it. Um, but, so, so I've I've listened to the Adventure Zone, but I haven't read it. Um, okay. So, so, yeah, so explain so, it to me with that as your yeah. In. So a couple things a couple things about it is that it Griffin is still a character in it. So he, like the dungeon master occasionally pops up to like talk directly to the characters, hmm. but the characters are themselves. Like we just we're not dealing with um, Justin Travis and Clint role-playing like we we are watching their characters and that sounds like it could be really hokey and it actually i think it works incredibly well um the the first arc is also my least favorite 
uh, I think because they're all very clearly getting like their feet under them and figuring out what this thing is. Um, and so I think writing it as an adaptation after the fact, when they already know what they're doing, smooths mm-hmm. out a lot of the inconsistencies mm-hmm. um, and just makes for a more uh, like a smoother sailing storytelling. Well, and the first arc begins following the D&D 5th edition basic starter set initial module, but very quickly, I don't want to say goes off the rails, becomes its own story. Um, yeah, uh, Griffin talks about that in one of the Q&A episodes that they do about it, mm-hmm. that he figured out that he wanted to start doing original materials really pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, because this is not a licensed comic by right. Wizards of the Coast, a lot of the names have to get changed. For or, the... got, or got changed in the podcast, please see Barry Blue Jeans. Well, but... Like, names from the podcast get changed for the book. Oh, sure, totally. So, like, um, Fandolin is not called Fandolin because that's a registered right. trademark name from Wizards of the Coast. Right. Um, but, yeah, I just, I and I, I'm really excited because the second one is coming out this spring, which means that I think mm. they're probably going to do the whole story. Mm-hmm. And... If if I enjoyed the adaptation of what was my least favorite arc of the adventure this much, I, I'm thrilled to see what they do with future arcs that I think are just more solid examples of storytelling in general. So this is, looking far into the future, this is bad because the end of that podcast I did not expect and so I was like holding back tears in the coffee shop. And I don't know if I want to see that as a graphic novel, because I'll just be a mess. I was driving. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Nobody died. (laughs) There were moments in particularly the the Stolen Century, so like the second to last arc, that I, I, I think it's really impressive how all of their storytelling skills grow. And I think that they're really putting that to work. Um, I also think that Carrie Peach is an incredible visual humor humorist i guess mm-hmm. her 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 sense of comedic timing in her art is amazing mm. the way that she visually translates some of their jokes i think is just really it's super fun uh super unexpected uh i just loved it nice uh well my number five is also a book but it's it's not just any book it's it's a number of books um my number five, best 2018, is literally anything by N.K. Jemisin. Um, specifically, it's the Broken Earth trilogy, which just wrapped its um, the, the trilogy this year in 2018. Uh, she won a, Martha, you're going to back me up on this, Nebula? Yes. Great. Um, she won not just a Nebula, but a hat trick of Nebulas, the first and so far only author to do so for this trilogy. Um, also... Looking at some other authors I could name, she put out one book a year for three years, and then her trilogy was done. Um, you know, because that's called being a writer and, and having a good schedule. Um, you know, and not... Like, in the time that she put out this trilogy, we are still waiting on the winds of winter. So, just gonna leave did that you, there. Did, did you see the giant bookstop tome that George Martin just released that is not the winds of winter 
I did not. And also, come on, man. It is a history textbook detailing the entire uh, history and backstory of the Targaryen family. Uh, well, shoot, that is up my alley. But come on, man. Finish your book first. Then do your Silmarillion. Um, um, I would also like to point out that N.K. Jemison is a woman of color, which yes. makes her historic in the uh, history of the Nebula Awards. And also, all you sad puppies can kiss my ass. Yeah. First off, it's a PG podcast, but suck it. And second off, that was going to be my next point. Um, you can bleep me out. I believe in you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, I wasn't even thinking about what you had said, so cool. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about what I said. Um, her, her works are incredible and are so obviously, like, in the same way that, like, every major fantasy work for the past 100 years has been, like, generically and obviously white in an identifiable way, but because white isn't an identity, it's just normal. Her works are black in a way that's just normal, um, I I think. And she is a phenomenal world builder. She's phenomenal at character. Um, I devoured the Broken Earth trilogy and uh, after that went and read the Dreamblood duology, uh, which was the first book she had written but not the first one she got published um which is set in sort of an ancient egypt inspired world which also like sucked me in immediately i wanted more than two books um i am trying to not like i i've been waiting for the past month or two to not just immediately jump in and read the inheritance trilogy which is um, is that the hundred thousand kingdoms yes those are the ones of hers that i have read and they're incredible yeah they're the ones i've been like holding out for just so that I didn't read like everything she wrote in three months. Um, <laughs> and I know she has a new book out now, um, which is outrageous because she just had a book out this year already. So she has a book of short stories out now and is already working on her next work. So um, literally anything you pick up by her is going to be worth it. And I would say start with the Broken Earth trilogy because it's the one getting all the buzz now, but then don't stop there. Just keep reading. Uh, my next, my number four is another book, uh, and it's actually another fantasy book. Well, is Broken Earth fantasy or sci-fi? Uh, I would Doesn't call matter. it fantasy, but scientifically influenced fantasy. Uh, my next one is a fantasy book uh, by Holly Black, which was released way back in January, uh, called The Cruel Prince. One of the things that I love about Holly Black is that she writes pretty straightforward classical fairy tales, mm. um, like Brothers Grimm type stuff. You, you so have like me at fairy tale. Yes, so like her fairies will steal your children mm -hmm. um, and leave you with crazy changelings. But they don't uh, like cold iron. That's true. Awesome. Love these um, books. Yes. Adding it to my list. Uh, no, she she has written a lot. Uh, she has written several of them. The Cruel Prince is the first in a new trilogy, and it's about a pair of twin girls who get stolen. I'm trying to remember the. They end up in Fairyland, I think, because the the fairy that their mother was in love with, who she ended up running away from comes to collect restitution for her leaving. So he takes the, the girls with him back to fairyland hmm. and they have to grow up amongst like the fairy court mm -hmm. 
and they are very human. So it's about how the two of them, like their survival strategies. And when we, when we start the, the main thrust of the book, they're, I think 16 or 17. So they're both kind of reaching the point where they have to decide like what their place is going to be in this world, which is full of fairies that are like callously murderous and don't think of them as being like people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so it has a lot of that very, very classic Brothers Grimm fairy tale feeling while also being set in our like modern world. So every once in a while they uh, go on day trips. Oh, it's to, a modern like... setting. Yes. Ooh. So like every once in a while they go on day trips to like the mall. Um, but her her fairies are very like they they obey the rules of very classic uh, fairy tale fairies, like the kinds that you should be afraid of. I just read for the first time um, Terry Pratchett's Lord at Lords and Ladies. Yes, those it, are those kinds of fairies. Those are the fairies that we're talking about. Cool, very cool. Um, yeah, the next one, the second one is coming out soon, and I'm really excited about it. Um, if you want to dip your toe into Holly Black, I recommend the the. I recommend uh, getting consent first. This is a PG podcast. I'll cut it out. Um, the Darkest Part of the Forest, which is a standalone novel, and also, but has a, a very similar feeling to this one. Cool. All right. Uh, well, my number four is another album. Um, it is the uh, album, the eponymous album, Boy Genius by the band Boy Genius. Um, all one word, stylized, lowercase. Um, Boy Genius is a supergroup uh, composed of Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Now, I will admit I don't know who Lucy Dacus is, but Julian Baker and Phoebe Bridgers are phenomenal. Um, like, depressing female singer-songwriters, I guess you'd call their music. Um, they are part, they're definitely involved in, like, Justin Vernon's, uh, Orbit, um, Julian and Justin. Uh, Justin Vernon is Bonavere. Okay. Um, Julian Baker um, played with the National up at Eau Claire, and maybe also with the Bonavere's thing. Um, Phoebe Bridgers has a great Christmas song out. They are phenomenal female musicians uh martha i think you would like them a lot it's i was gonna say somewhere my sister is beating her head against the wall because i don't know any of these people yeah you would like i mean like it's sad sack music but it's amazingly beautiful sad sack music so and like you know women who can sing good and play guitar um yeah so you would like them all individually but you would definitely love boy genius i'd recommend starting there since you get to sort of hear a little bit of all of them it's like a 30 40 minute album um with really catchy uh, catchy and scare quotes tunes um yeah so that is it's it's the kind of thing where like i had been into julian baker before this album I listened to the album and I immediately started looking up Phoebe Bridgers um, and got into her through this. So, super groups are great. Boy Genius is great. I'm into it. Uh, where am I at? Oh, so my number three is <laughs> going to make for a fun one-two punch. Oh, no. No, I'm, I'll, I'll change up my order. It's fine. 
Okay, so I do want to preface this by saying my three, two, ones could go in any order. Mm-hmm. And they are all actually fairly tonally similar. <laughs> um, but number three is Black Panther. This movie is incredible. If you haven't seen it yet, it just went up on Netflix. I might watch it tonight Ooh. while I'm cleaning my house. I didn't know that. Sweet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Netflix sends me uh, notifications every once in a while when they're like, we just put something up that we think you'd like. Um, so I get notified every time Marvel puts a movie up. Um, Avengers I, I, is going up on Christmas, and I'll watch that again. But I'm excited for Black Panther. I was going to say, I really I don't know what to say about this if you haven't seen it yet. Smarter people than me have written about the importance of this movie. All I can really speak to is the fact that I I was so deeply impressed at the way that all of the characters are handled. Um, T'Challa's character arc and showing like what kind of king he is and how he rules through like knowing when to step back and let more competent people than he is do what they're good at. Um, I don't know. He is, he is humble and a team player in a way that not a lot of the Marvel superheroes are. And the fact that he is like a literal King, I think makes that even more impressive. He learns a lot of lessons that Marvel tries to get its other heroes to learn, but his story is about learning that lesson. Whereas the other heroes, the lesson is sort of incidental to their story. Also, the women in this movie are incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. the the one, two, three, four punch of Lupita Nyong'o and Denai Guerrera and Angela Bassett, and I have to look up Whoever the incredible woman who plays Shuri. <laughs> um, they are... Well, and, and the guy who plays Umbaku, uh, whose name I'm blanking on... Um... Oh, Winston Duke. Winston Duke came out of nowhere as, and like was amazing. Um, he's gonna be he's gonna be in the next Jordan Peele movie with Lupita Nyong'o. Awesome! Oh, that's gonna be great. Yes. Um, speaking of uh, uh, Peele movies, um, Letitia Wright. Letitia Wright, is there the we go. <laughs> wonderful woman who plays Shuri. Um, um, Michael uh, B. Jordan as Killmonger. I mean, Daniel the- Kaluuya, like. The biggest, I think the biggest issue that this movie has is that we didn't really need Martin Freeman to be there. Um, you're not wrong, but I get why he's there. I, I get why he's there. I'm, I see him as being the entry point to the white viewer. Yes. And I feel resentful that they felt the need that they had to do that. The only reason I'm cool with it is that he's a character who played that same exact role in a 90s comic written by um, Priest. Uh, I'm blanking on his first name. Um, who was like a, a seminal Black Panther writer from the 90s and who created this character and introduced him as basically like the white American entry point to, um, like to Black Panther and to uh, Wakanda and everything else. Um, so he's... He's playing the same role he did in the comics. I get all your critiques about it. Yeah, I just wish we didn't have to live in a world where we still, where we could have such an unapologetically black movie that still felt the need to let a white man be a savior in a moment. And it's, I mean, it's it's a fairly small moment, but it still exists. And I'm sort of like, we didn't, 
we didn't need this. And it makes me mad because I feel like the studio probably said you need this. Okay, I I might argue about this uh, off air, but I feel like he's playing the same character that a token black guy would play in a different action movie. And I like the idea of token white guy. As a, as a white guy, uh, I like the idea of being tokenized. Um, I, think problem, I think the problem is that I don't know that it's a trope that works if you just 180 reverse it because mm. white saviorism is such a horrible issue. That's true. Let's fight about this off air. Okay. <laughs> anyway, number three, Black Panther. Cool. Um, I was thinking about uh, rejiggering my list order on the fly to make my number three also Black Panther, but I'm not going to do it so I can sort of yada yada Black Panther. Um, okay. It, you got to do. Instead, my number three is going to be the Unspooled podcast, which I checked and did just begin in this the year 2018. Um, the longest year. Uh Unspooled is a podcast uh, with Amy Nicholson and Paul Shear about movies. They are going oh, through watching the Criterion Collection. Uh, the AFI Top One Hundred. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, ooh, that'd be a fun alternative podcast. Uh, talks no, about it. He talks about it on How Did This Get Made. Sometimes when mm. he's like, and now I get to go watch good movies. <laughs> Have you not been listening to Unspooled? Oh, it's delightful. Um, because they're like they're both movie nerds. Amy Nicholson is a film critic. Paul Shear is an actor, and as Martha alluded to, is on How Did This Get Made, a phenomenal podcast with Jason Manzukis, uh, Manzukising all over the place, uh, where they watch bad movies. Unspooled, they're going through the AFI Top One Hundred. So, um, they just did um, It's a Wonderful Life because you know Christmas time. Uh, and before that, they were doing things like Schindler's List, Jurassic Park. Uh, I'm just going to keep listing Spielberg movies because there's a lot of Spielberg movies on the <laughs> AFA Top 100. Um, Dude knows how to make a movie. Rocky, Clockwork Orange, Sophie's Choice, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They do a really good job at interrogating. Like, they, they talk about the movies often lovingly, often critically. Clockwork Orange was a fascinating episode because they're really interrogating whether these movies deserve to be on the list and sort of like... There's a lot of 60s and 70s, you know, Scorsese-type movies, uh, Coppola-type movies on the list because the people at AFI, uh, American Film Institute, either grew up watching that as kids or, like, are of the same time period. And it's a lot of white dudes making these lists, so it's a lot of that kind of movie. Um, but they're also the movie canon. So it's well, it's it, I... well-informed discussion and argument. I love some I love any discussion that is willing to interrogate the idea of what we think of as being the canon for anything. Yes. Whether that's film or comics <coughs> or literature because typically the quote unquote canon is always so full of old white guys and this idea that that is something that like is holy and can't be changed or discussed or examined mm -hmm. is so damaging I think to culture. Um, yes. So yeah, anything that's willing to look at our biases and kind of question whether or not something still has not value because they do, but like, like whether there could be something maybe better at this point, because we've also we've learned some stuff about making movies. Right. Like, is it one of the top 100 American films ever made? It, because it's the AFI, it's American films. Um, right. So, like, you know, Moonlight 
is not on this list. But also, Moonlight just came out two, three years ago. So, like, would it deserve to be even on that list to be get, like at this point in time to begin with? That's a valid question. But in ten years, is it going to be on this list? Who knows? Um, is Ben Hur going to get the boot? Who knows? Um, so it's it's very fascinating podcast for some deep film discussion about good movies. Um, lots of podcasts talk about bad movies. It's sort of a breath of fresh air to get uh, like a good movie podcast and then interrogating that those good movies. Hooray! Yeah, I love movies so much. <laughs> uh- <laughs> But my number two is a book. Um, uh, my number two on this list is Anger is a Gift by Marco Shiro, which is a YA novel that came out this summer that is all about um, black teenager rage. Um, Mark is a uh, Hispanic a Hispanic author who grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco and anger is a gift draws a lot on his real life experience uh experiences um that he had at his high school uh and is about it's about teens basically being treated horribly and deciding that they have had enough Hmm. so moss is the name of the main character uh who is a gay black teen uh going to high school in the bay area uh, at a high school that has no money. Like they talk about how some of their English classes are using photocopied texts because they can't, they have no money for textbooks. Like their hallway, their building is crumbling. It's just, it's one of those, it's one of those high schools that isn't performing. So they don't get money. So they don't have the opportunity to do better. The the book probably doesn't describe it in these terms, but it's probably ninety percent minority, ninety percent free, and redu- reduced lunch. It does. It no. It it goes there. It oh, gets cool. real. It gets <clears throat> real explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a security guard who, in the beginning of the book, um, they start instating random locker searches. Mm. Uh, and the security guard finds a bag of unmarked medication uh, in one of the student's lockers. Um, we, the reader, know that the student is um, a transgendered student who's going through hormone therapy. Mm. But the uh, security guard, you know, makes a lot of assumptions, ends up assaulting the student. And then the school's solution to this is to install metal detectors. Yeah, that, that's reasonable for bringing in unmarked pills. Yeah, uh, at which point the students decide, rightfully, that they have had enough. So the book then becomes about them deciding what they can do um, and what they're going to do about making their school a place that they can go to to get the education that they deserve. Um, it's... it's uh, I'm sorry, I work with teens, so reading about such likable teenagers going through stuff that no child should have to go through, but being strong enough to like figure out how to deal with it and how to get out the other end was a really emotional reading experience for me. Um, it's also a really good companion read to the hate you give, which Mm. just, just, um, got made into a movie, uh, which I, the movie did not make it onto my list, but I did love it a lot. But it's about the same thing. It's about kids seeing how terrible things are and deciding that 
they can do something about it. And I'm, I'm just all about, I'm all about teens being empowered to enact change. Um, I'm really trying hard not to be a person who's like the children will save us all because I feel like that puts that lets us off the hook too much. Yeah. Um, but also anything that anything that empowers teens to to see that they can make a difference and that their voices are valuable, um, I think is really powerful. Um, you're talking about installing the metal detectors as the solution reminds me that um, the Stoneman Douglas shooting, which again happened this year somehow, um, that was the the Florida shooting. Um, yeah. One of the solutions there was to mandate see-through backpacks um which is such a like instead of actually fixing the problem we'll just strip away more civil rights and treat everyone like criminals and that will solve the problem yes um and now i'm put uh stepping off my soapbox um but anyway anger is a gift is about 500 pages long and i read it in three days because mm. i couldn't stop mm -hmm. Um, it is a book that is long, but is not dense. It's very readable. Um, and I, I think that that kind of book written about, written about people of color by people of color. I don't think there is, I don't think there's a single straight white main character in this book. Mm. Um, and I think that that kind of perspective for teens and for everybody is so incredibly valuable. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know that I can say enough good things about this book. Cool. Um, my number two is going to be real quick. It's Black Panther. Yay! Yay, Black Panther. <laughs> Insert our earlier discussion <laughs> yes. here. Please rewind 15 minutes to hear our thoughts about Black Panther. Um, I didn't decide to pair it up with Martha's Black Panther comment because Black Panther segues very nicely into my number one choice, uh, but... It also segues very nicely into Martha's number one choice. So, listen, <laughs> I saw, I'm I saw. I'm kind of sad I didn't put your number one on my list anywhere, but I kind of ran out of room. Well, okay, so I went to see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse last Saturday. Mm -hmm. I had already written my list before I went to see it, and I came home angry that I had to redo the whole thing. <laughs> It's so good. This movie is incredible. And it's also the reason that I challenge your idea that something like The Wicked and the Divine couldn't be made into a film. Mm. Because the animation in this movie, like I have seen a lot of animated stuff. And Into the Spider-Verse does things with animation that I've never seen before. Yeah, nothing um, looks I, like this movie. I was reading somewhere that they like invented half a dozen animation techniques just to get the particular look that they were going for. I also heard it took something like, I'm, I'm really glad that 2018 is 40 years long because it took them about 40 years to render the whole thing, uh, which makes sense. But yeah, this is, this movie does a couple of incredible things. Um, not the least of which is making me care about Spider-Man again. Um, Cause it's Miles I, Morales. Yes. Well, even, even Peter Parker, like I've never been a huge Peter Parker fan. I really did enjoy the first two Tobey Maguire movies, but like Spider-Man has never been my comic book hero of choice. And in the world of Spider-Mans, I think Peter Parker is pretty boring. Mm -hmm. um, 
but Miles is fabulous. <laughs> um, Spider Gwen, Gwen, Gwen Stacy is my heart and my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to spoil this movie. Is, is one that has been out for seven minutes, so I don't want to spoil anything. But also, the villain is great. <laughs> um, yeah, they're like they do pathos around the villain. You kind of you don't agree oh, with, but you I was sympathize. Talking, I, I meant the other villain. The surprise mm, film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also great. Yep. Um, and Aunt May is phenomenal. Um, I just every. I, I I don't think that I, I don't think I can come up with a single, critique of this movie. And I am somebody who shows their love of movies by picking things apart. You saw it in two D, right? I've I've heard like I can't see movies in 3D, so I prefer to see them in 2D. Um, and I've heard that that's the way to go on this guy. Partly, I, yeah. partly because they use literal like red dot blue dot 3D effect yeah, to, like to show soft focus in a 2D movie, which is outrageous and crazy and cool. There were a couple moments where I was like, "Are we accidentally in the 3D screening of this movie?" Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are parts of it that look very much like a motion comic. And there are parts that look like a music video, and the music is incredible. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, there were parts of the voice cast that I didn't know going in that I was just delighted by. Um, not to spoil anything, but it's on the the casting and everything. Uh, we we went in. I don't think some of our friends knew that it was Nick Cage uh, doing one of the, the voices. Spider Man Noir. No, yeah. that was amazing. And they're like, was "Who is?" I'm like, "It's Nick Cage." Perfect. <laughs> John Mulaney? Um, so, yeah, I think it is a crying shame that this movie will probably not win the Best Animated Oscar uh, because it is it is a singular achievement in animated film. Do you think it won't win because it's too weird, capital T, capital W, for the Academy to, like, actually care about? I think it won't win because it's a superhero movie. Mm, fair. But like, what, what's it's up against? Like Incredibles two, that's a superhero. Movie. I was gonna say it's a superhero movie that wasn't done by Pixar. Mm, there we go. I also don't know what other animated films came out this year. Uh, uh, off the top of my head, Ralph. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Ralph breaks the internet. Uh-huh. I actually, I, I read a really interesting article. This is neither here nor there, so I won't spend too much time on it. Um, but it was a an examination of all of the other animated movies that had come out this year that were not by Pixar or Disney. <laughs> the Hufflepuffs, as you would. <laughs> <laughs> And just sort of now that we're into Oscar debate season, um, was like, here are some other movies that you could pay attention to, mm-hmm. which I found really interesting because there's frequently a lot of international animation that doesn't really get the breadwinner came out this year, I think. Yes, it did. Because this year is 40 years long. Yeah. Ugh. Yes, it did. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Oof. That's your best picture. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I may be high on endorphins because I just saw it a couple days ago, but I'm putting Into the Spider-Verse as my number one for 2018. Nice. Uh, my number one is Janelle Monet's album and also emotion picture, Dirty Computer. Um, you thought Prince was dead, but then he was reincarnated as Janelle Monet. Uh, and, I, I don't know, this album's phenomenal. It's queer AF, it's black AF, it's, uh, fantastic music the the movie that she made that goes along with it which is something like 50 minutes long is um 
like Afrofuturism at its best. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, go do so. It's funky, it's fresh, it's great. Um, it's very timely. I can't say enough good things about it. Tessa Thompson shows up in all the, uh, in the video and in the, uh, basically all the, um, uh, music videos are just clips, like, from the emotion picture, which are then strung together by an overarching plot. So Tessa Thompson's in it, uh, which is always a plus, because this has been the year of Tessa Thompson. Who is also in Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this on my list, and then it got bumped for Spider-Man. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, I, ha I had it on my list because it was incredible. Um, ultimately, it did feel a little not true to me and the kind of pop culture that I habitually consume, just because without taking away anything from Janelle Monae's accomplishments, I'm not generally a music person as my primary mm -hmm. uh, means of pop culture consumption. Um, but the, I mean, this album is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just talking about this the other day, but I have a strong memory of... Like, a, a bizarre, for me especially, a bizarrely strong memory of um, the first time I ever heard of Janelle Monae and heard one of her songs was right off the Arc Android. And upon, like, ten seconds into the song, I'm just like, who is this person? What is this music? I love everything about it. Get me more. Um, and then her second album was fine, but I don't think as good as her, as, um, uh, her first. Uh, and then this one was just a lightning bolt. Yeah, I first heard of Janelle Monet through Glee. So mm -hmm. that is a cross that I have to bear. <laughs> <sighs> Great. So those are our top 10 lists of 2018. Wide variety of stuff, although kind of all thematically related, or at least some strong themes running through those lists. There's a lot of... This is the year of black excellence. Um, your top three and my top two, and, and these are in no particular order, but still order, I think, kind of matters, um, are are definitely either by or about or all of the above um, people of color in some way or another as, as the starring role, and which Pete, is the future. And Pete and I are both extremely white. Oh, um, super white. So... I think it is important to note that while we are not, it is not necessarily our lane to be heavily analyzing these media, we can clearly appreciate their excellence, mm -hmm. which means that this whole I don't identify with this piece of media because I am uncomfortable and we are not about me thing needs to stop. Yes. Uh, so, Pete, why don't you tell me what your least favorite piece of homework was All right. for our podcast <laughs> this year? Um, so I'm, I'm going to lay the groundwork here with that both my least favorite and my favorite. I wanted to pick choices that I had never consumed before. Um, yeah, I, I don't think this applies super heavily to our least favorite because, like, why would I want to consume a thing twice that I didn't like? But it's going to factor in more uh, favorite. Um, I'm going to admit that Repo the Genetic Opera was strongly in the running for my least favorite because that was a rough watch. But it was such a mess and such an insane mess and it starred Giles from Buffy that I was kind of able to like roll with it. 
Whereas the art of starving, um, just I, I was uncomfortable reading the whole thing because, and I think we talked about this in the episode. It felt like it was glorifying um, eating disorders in some way, and it just made me very. I I I thought it was like generic YA, which I tend to not like. Checking a lot of boxes on my. Um, Martha, I'm not sure if you know, but I have my generic YA bingo sheet of As like, we all do. Yeah. As we all do. Yeah, and I feel like I got bingo multiple times reading this, um, which is See, not good. I, um, I am still I'm still really like it doesn't surprise me that you didn't care for this one. I still disagree so hard with the reading of Glorifying. It, of glorifying eating disorders. Like I, I don't think there's a single page of this book that well, is they, saying that what he's doing is a good thing. Well, it's that he's getting superpowers from it, or so he thinks. Um I, I was gonna say, I think the difference is that I did not and do not take anything that he that, that I don't know. He thinks this happening is real. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I don't think any of it is actually happening. I think it is completely a delusion. Which is fine, but I think that that's a like since it's a fir- it's first person, right? We read this yes. back in like springtime, a um, long time ago. Yeah, like ten years ago. Uh, so like be- because it's it- it's first person, and you are so invested in in his point of view. It even though it's all delusional, it still feels kind of like. Like, you're hurting yourself, dude, stop it, but also, like, super strength. Um, I, I don't know, it, it rubbed me the wrong way in a lot of ways. Um, well, and it's, wanna... it's one of the few that leapt out at me. I don't want to argue about this because, it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Um, but I, I, will, I will, I think, go to the mat for the fact that I think the point of the book is that people who suffer from eating disorders trick themselves so thoroughly into thinking they're doing something good. Mm-hmm. I, I won't just... Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I disagree with you. But even the, like, the idea that some teen could read this book and walk away with the idea that, like, like this is fine is one that I would... I, I think that's what read me the wrong way. Uh, isn't the idea that the book itself had this as its thesis, but that you could... If you're an impressionable young person who wasn't thinking critically on it, I think you could walk away with either response. Um, so, uh, and and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in person later. Uh, I kind of forgot that we watched Fursonas, but that was so fascinating to me. I was going to say, that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, like, I it was... <laughs> A lot of what we watched this year or consumed this year was like, I don't know if it was good, but it was interesting. So my least favorite thing was Interstellar, but I had seen that before, so yep. I'm not counting that. Yep, yep, good. Um, I, I'm cheating because I could not choose. I I think my least favorite thing was Wolf and White Van mm-hmm. by Peter Darniel, but I also uh, really... Uh, not Peter Darniel. Uh, Darniel. Um... Darniel. Yes. John. John Darnell. There we go. Um, I also got. So I was also so bored that I died while I was watching the Maltese Falcon. So <laughs> you and Bill both. I'm very, very sad and sorry. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, we, we hashed that out in that episode. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't really want to get into it. Interstellar sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I also, uh, like you did, Pete, I stayed away from stuff that I 
had seen or consumed before for the um for these favorites um because if i had stuck with things i'd seen before my favorite thing is princess mononoke because yep that is my favorite movie from now and forever yep um <laughs> but in reality my favorite piece of homework that we uh did this year was the girl with all the gifts mm-hmm. uh the movie directed by colm mccarthy which i thought was um, emotional and interesting and a really good adaptation. Um, and I just, I really liked watching it. I'm, I'm very fond of things that do zombies in unexpected ways. And I thought that that definitely counted. Yeah. I, I too, uh, obviously did not choose anything that I'd already consumed for favorites. Cause otherwise we had Wally, we had Pan's Labyrinth, we had Princess Mononoke. Uh, it was impossible to choose. Um, I was on the fence with girl with all the gifts that was in my, like, that's my number two, I think, favorite of things I haven't consumed already. Um, but for my number one, I this might be a recency bias issue, um, but I'm going to go with here. The book by, or the, the graphic Novel. fourth dimensional experience Novel. by Richard McGuire, um, which I don't know if it was my per se favorite, but I can't stop thinking about it. Both in terms of individual sequences and in terms of, like, a way to tell a story. Um, Mark and I, I were just it, talking about it the other day oh. and, and and talking about that versus, like, other fourth-dimensional um, ways to tell narratives. Um, and and it's really... it's It stuck with me in an interesting way. I will tell you, this one was on my list of contenders for least favorite. Mm. But, uh, like, I, I know that your take was, like, this would be a really good six-page thing, but not a good hundred page thing i just at a certain point i need there to either be a story or to understand what the author is trying to say to me and i didn't ever get that from here yeah and i don't think it's there and i think that's part of the point but i also get why that would bump it down real yeah, close to your say, least that's a, favorite that's a problem that's a problem for me. <laughs> right, right, right yeah it, it's a total like your mileage may vary on it all right i think that that is a good place to end i would hazard <laughs> uh that yeah if you're still listening uh next episode which will be in the new year we're going to be talking about hypocrisy which fun fact is a word i cannot spell um so, it is also supremely relevant. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, Martha, what is your homework for hypocrisy? I am assigning the... Pause for dramatic effect. The 2004 Mandy Moore-led comedy Saved. Oh, I forgot you was in that. I was going to yes. be all in on the uh, Colkin. Oh, yeah. Jenna Maloney, <laughs> uh, Kieran Culkin. Um, Isn't it the other? Uh, uh, the Home Alone Culkin? No, it's oh. his little brother. Oh, okay. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. It is Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Sorry. I was watching Scott Pilgrim the other night, and that is Kieran Culkin in that oh. movie. Um, but yeah, about a group of teens going to a Christian high school. Cool. Uh, I am doing George Orwell's Animal Farm. Uh, after grappling with choosing that versus uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, but we're gonna go Animal Farm instead. So... I would have watched. 
I would have watched the Disney movie and then you would have gotten really no, no, mad at that, me. That's what I would have assigned. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Probably. I've never read the book. I, I've never I read the book, so I'd have to... change your mind yet? <laughs> I, I'm not going to assign a Victor Hugo book. That would take like 10 years. That was my first thought, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and we're, we're going to be joined by uh, my friend, former roommate, and former podcast guest Sarah Shaw, who is assigning right. the Ides of March a 2011 movie starring Amal Clooney's husband and Ryan Baby Goose. Um, that would be George Clooney and Ryan Gosling, for those of you who are slow on the uptake on that one. Um, and so that is going to wrap up our 2018 year. Um, so we are recording this before Christmas, but by the time it drops, it will be Boxing Day. Um, so all of our listeners, I hope you had a lovely holiday, and we will see you in the new year. Yes, uh, Martha, where should they follow you? Uh, you can follow me on all the things at Magical Martha, and you can subscribe to my newsletter at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Cool. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. You can follow the show on Twitter at DYDYH. Yes? Great. Yes. At, at DYDYH. Uh, and uh, yes. I know I was forgetting something. Um <laughs> You can follow the show at on Twitter at DYDYH Podcasts. You can find us on Facebook. Did you do your homework? Search for it on Facebook if you're still using it. Facebook is bad. Maybe don't use it. Um, you can email us at homework at podcast.com. Show, show at See, this is why I always copy and paste these into the, uh, the notes before everything, because I don't have these in my mind at all. Um... <laughs> Rate and review us on iTunes, uh, listen to us on Spotify, subscribe, share it with your friends. If you're going on a long car ride or plane ride, hey, download a couple episodes. It's a good thing to listen to on a long journey over the holidays. friend of mine um, who I just found out listens to our show. Uh, so thank you, Mark, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Great. Uh, class dismissed. See you in the new year. All right. I'm going to go furiously clean my house. <laughs>